Welcome to the Formal Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast is created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. Typically, we aim to interview physicians are currently or retired from the military. However, today we have a special podcast in which we will be interviewing a listed member of our Air Force Technical Sergeant James O'Day. And I have him here with me, James. How are you today? I'm very good. How are you? Thanks very much. Great. Yeah. Great. So, a little history here between Sergeant Rivera and I. Previously, I was enlisted, and Sergeant Rivera and I were both stationed in Alaska together. We became pretty good friends, and it's been a good thing that friendship for me has continued, not so much on his part, but he's nice enough to do this for us tonight. Thanks, James, for being here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, James, what this is for us is helping medical students understand medicine in the military. And I pitched the idea that, hey, it'd be really good if we could understand our patients further to understand where they're coming from, from the enlisted side. Those kinds of things. So I just pitched the idea that, hey, if we're going to be taking care of enlisted members, they should know a little bit more about them. And I think that's kind of the purpose of what we're doing here today. Awesome. So with that being said, just talk a little bit about yourself. Sure. I've been in the Air Force for a little over 12 years now. My wife and I... I uh, joined from uh, Medford, Oregon. We kind of traveled around everywhere before then. We have five kids now. We have four boys and one girl, age ranging from almost 18 all the way down to five years old. And I'm a client systems technician in the Air Force and on the university side. And kind of uh, traveled around the world and fixed the computer. That's awesome. So, when I say technical sergeant in the enlisted structure, where does that fall? What does that mean? What's the difference between a sergeant and an airman, and like a junior enlisted and a senior NCO? Sure. Great, great question. So, on the enlisted structure here, we have uh, all the way down to a an E1, going from an E9 enlisted, and then it goes from one to nine. The E stands for the enlisted, and technical sergeant falls in kind of right at the mid-range. Uh, I'm an E6 right now. The NCO portion of it, the non-commissioned officer portion of it, and then the E1 through E4. So there's airmen, and then there's also A1C, airmen first class, and then also the uh, senior airmen, those are the junior enlisted, and junior enlisted. Kind of start out when you're right, right out, you get a basic training and they go to school. You go from basic training to a technical school where you can learn how to do your job and the basics of your job. And then when you go to your first base as a junior enlisted personnel, you will be able to kind of get some on the job training and learn a little bit more detail what you would be doing as an airman. And then when you start gaining that rank, you become a non-commissioned officer, which is a staff sergeant, tech sergeant, and then those two are the junior NCOs, and then from master sergeant, which is E7, and then you have master sergeant, senior master sergeant, and chief master sergeant, and those are the uh, senior NCOs, senior non-commissioned officers. Awesome. Yeah, so there's a lot in there to talk about. Let's talk about tech school, uh, technical training. And so a lot of the training for physicians is going to be done in a civilian program typically. And then you can either go to a civilian program for your residency or you can do a military residency. 
And after that, you're considered a fully qualified position, as you know, and then you just do your job. On the enlisted side, it's different. For example, for when I enlisted, I was 21, 22. Available at the test, and based on the results of that test, you're eligible for these career fields. I was a Russian Newark. So my technical training was actually pretty long. It was about two years. The first year I spent learning Russian and moved on to California, and the second year I went and learned my Intel specific training. And so these tech schools can be anywhere from two or three weeks for something like finance to up to two years for something like intelligence Newark, as I was. Where was your tech school? How long was it? I have a very unique background in the Air Force. I have kind of been bounced around between different career fields. And normally, as a client system technician of a computer tech, all of our tech schools are in Mississippi at Keysboro Air Force Base. I did get to go to Keysboro Air Force Base for a five-week training, but it was nothing to do with my job. So I came into the Air Force as a project manager. I had a five-and-a-half-week course, and then I got to go to my first base. But nowadays, there is a tech school that is for client systems, and they go and they run official Cisco computer courses that are in the civilian world, about a six-month school where they get their Security Plus, which is a computer course in the civilian world, which is also in the military that we use to kind of have a standard that we should be working at when we're working on computers and other things depending on which kind of computer education you get, will take you to a different kind of job in the computer side in the military. For me specifically, I've just been bounced around. I came in as a project manager. I went to my first base. They didn't need a project manager. And listed is a lot different when it comes to what they can do with you versus when all of you come in as an officer. So my career field, they didn't end up needing me. They ended up combining career So. Yeah, as for now, for you that will become physicians and officers, you are going through some in-depth schooling in the civilian world and also depending on where you're going to school at and in the military world, you are getting your education in those things and you are learning those things. With the enlisted side of things, they can kind of combine career fields. They can say, hey, we're no longer going to have this career field, so we're going to just push you over here. Sometimes they give you a way where if you don't want to do that, you can get out get out of the military. So I wanted to stay in. I merged into a becoming a project manager into a computer technician client system. Just for a little bit of background, it's kind of like the G squad best buy of the Air Force. There are multiple different tiers of computers. We're like the space of calm. So when you later on to your being in your position, you're gonna have a problem with your computer. Somebody may come out and that person would be somebody like me. They're the face, they come out, they say, hey, what's wrong with the computer? You'll tell us, and we can't take care of that. That's my portion of it. There's also other portions of calm that you'll never see to know what's all in the dungeon of calm there. Uh, they never are really seen. So let's talk a little bit about the structure of the Air Force. At the most basic level, the smallest level of the group of people is called a flight, right? Yes. Okay. So a flight would consist of how many people? A flight is generally different uh, in office or a small little group, and you have multiple flights within your squadron. Squadron can be a few hundred people sometimes, mm-hmm. which will go up into groups, and then that group will go up into a wing, and, that, and it just goes up and up further out. It has more and more people. A wing 
and then there can be multiple wings on a base. Right now, I'm in the 75th Air Base wing, and then you can have different things growing out all the way throughout the base. You'll have different groups and so forth. Yeah, specifically on the base, there's going to be like an operations group. Yep. There's going to be a maintenance group, a transport group. Yep. And then there's going to be a medical group. So lots of physicians. When you're in Alaska, I remember there's a fighter pilot group, right? The support group, there's like all the electricians, finance, and personnel, and support staff. And then there's the hospital, and that was its own group. Yep. Coming in as officers and physicians, our team is going to do patient care. That's the physician side, but we are also going to be brand new captains, and so we will most likely be in charge of a flight. We'll be a flight leader. And so even though a physician is kind of a dual head of things, you're going to be clinical patient care, but we will also be in charge of one of these flights as a captain, and then moving up into major, we might get a squadron even at that point and have several flights under us. So that's kind of how that's going to work for our end. In the flight level, you're a non-commissioned officer. I really want to stress that you are a non-commissioned officer. Still an officer, just not non, just not commissioned. And so you have managerial roles as well. Can you speak to that a little bit, where you fall in line with all that? Sure. So I'm the NCOIC, is what they call it, non-commissioned officer in charge of my flight. Is what, uh, what we do is the client system flight within within my building, within my group. We have the client systems, we have a network side, we have a server side, and it's all combined with our group. I'm in charge of all the client systems people within that group, so we do a flight. How many people are you in charge of? So I'm in Hill Air Force Base, and there are 20 enlisted personnel, and we have a... Uh, about 20 GS civilians that work within our shop. Still, Air Force Base is kind of uh, its own little monster. Uh, we have zero officers. It's kind of a unique situation here on this place. Typically, I guess how the, the relationship between like an NCOIC and then a flight commander would be we have 15, 20, 30 people on our flight, whatever, right? And then as a potential or future flight commander, the officer, I would say, hey, you know, here's what's going on, or how's the flight doing? As an NCIC, you would come to a specific enlisted problem, or say, hey, you know, the airmen that I oversee are having this problem, or have this sort of morale, or have this idea, we want to develop that through you. As a flight commander, I would take that, I would say, hey, cool, what do you think you should do about it? I like that idea. Sounds like it is obviously kind of back and forth. It's really a working relationship. It's not a higher tier, lower tier, you know, it's, it's really a, a pretty uh, good relationship if it works out right. There's also obviously toxic relationships, and I think you've probably seen that, and I guess it's not when I do it, and how uh, people kind of go ahead sometimes. So. Yes, sir. So I think it comes down to a good point. Within our tier, there is a chain of command. The chain of command normally would deal with, for example, my airmen will talk to their immediate supervisors. Their immediate supervisors are usually SEOs, staff sergeants, some senior admins that have gone through the leadership training to be able to become managers or leaders that are in charge. And then they would come to me as the non-commissioned officer in charge um, with any kind of issues that we have within our own office. If it needs to be routed up, I usually will go through my next person, my section chief, is usually my master sergeant. My master sergeant would usually take it to 
we have a senior national target that doesn't work within our little area, but he's in charge of the whole group of enlisted people. And if he needed to, he would take a senior and then we kind of go from there. But normally, uh, on a day-to-day, uh, again, we don't have any officers, so we have uh, a civilian, which is uh, an N-8. Which is a new one that I'm not too familiar with, with that part, but he's a civilian and he is considered kind of where you would end up being. He'd be the commander of our squadron. He's a civilian. So normally I wouldn't necessarily directly to you, although if leadership is properly working, I would feel like if I needed to, I could. So it's very important that. So we use that chain of command, and then if I'm going to go past my chain of command, that I've properly told them that I was going to, first so that I wouldn't surprise them and, you know, catch them off guard and, and not necessarily burn bridges at all, you know, as I'm going to taking care of business. With that said, I think going through different leadership schools that I've gone through, it's very important, and, and, and I know more that you've gone through as well, but we're always taught to be good leaders but also good followers, and we have to have that two-way street always going so that we can follow and lead at the exact same time. Yeah, and that's actually not an enlisted specific thing. Even on the officer side, everyone in the Air Force has a boss, right? So even like the chief of staff, the new four-star general who just got appointed, he has a boss, he has to report to, right? Secretary of Defense, that's how that works. And so even the highest officer in the Air Force has to be a great follower. I think that's important uh, to remember that. When I was enlisted, right at the end of my enlisted time, I was the NCOIC of my shop as well. I was a staff sergeant. It was great because I was the only person in the entire shop. I kind of had a weird job, so I had a shop of one, and I was the NCOIC. You were the boss of your I was the boss of myself. <laughs> and so I was in meetings with the party chief, and they'd say, hey, how's your office doing? And I said, I'm doing great. And so I guess it's just depending on the end, you know, always changes. Yeah. Manning always changes. Even now, my career field is going through a complete change again. So, I mean, within the next couple of years, I mean, I will be doing the exact same job I'm doing right now. So, you talked about some of your leadership training. And uh, on the list slide, the leadership training is actually quite extensive. I've gone through the first round of schooling that you listed do. That's any leadership school that you do typically as an E4 or senior in. But you've gone further than that. Talk to us about how extensive that leadership training is. So, again, I've had a very unique experience within the Air Force. I absolutely love being in the Air Force and it has been an amazing experience for me. So to start with, I mean, besides the tech school that we've already talked about, going from tech school, we have ALS, Airman Leadership School. Once you have a position or if your leadership thinks you as a senior airman, so as an E4, you have potential to becoming a NCO. Uh, staff sergeant, which is the first position of the NCO E5, then you can go to, if you have a line number, meaning you're getting ready to put on E5, or if you're a senior and that you're just doing a really good job, you're stellar, they won't put you in the school, you can go to this leadership school. And it's a, I think it's about six weeks. Yeah, yeah actually, so I'm going to interrupt you. So I guess before we talk about leadership school that you get to go to, we can talk about how you make rank on the listed side. So you reference, you reference the line number. What does that mean? From E1, 2, and 3, those first four is just time, time and service. And as you do time and service, there's a certain amount of time in the rank that you have, and I um, don't have all the math. It's like six months to a year, two years and a half. Yeah, depending on um, 
And as long as you're staying at home, you're continuing to progress, you're doing your job, you will make those first three links to validate that you already have. Then you'll make those first three airmen, airmen for class, and senior airmen. You'll make just by having a breathing. Yeah, just by breathing and staying at home. And not being that guy. Not being that, yeah. No, that airman that, you know, causing any kind of trouble. So you do those, you're fine. For staff budget, you have to test. For staff budget, there's a book, it's, uh, it's the PDG, right? the Professional Development Guide, that they have that you study and it's kind of full of history and different airmen force instructions and lives and a whole bunch of different things that you have to study and kind of understand the basics of. And then so you have to test on that. And then you also have to test on your career skills. Of course, every career is a little different. You just have to know what you're going to be testing on. You have a book that you study within each career field. So for staff sergeant and for tech sergeant, you have to study both those things within those career fields, and you have to get a certain amount of points. Mm -hmm. And then also your EPR, your enlisted performance report, which is your EPR, uh, and that's just a yearly report on how you're doing and what you've done volunteer-wise, military-wise, educational, and it's just an all-encompassing report of everything done, including the tests that you've just taken. And if you get a high enough score, and those scores always change, the, every year they always change. And as long as you hit that cutoff, then you will make rank. And if you don't, then there's a, what they call a higher tenure. You can always stay within that rank a certain amount of time. And if you don't make it, then you get out. And you're done. So to jump in here real quick. So when I was in, I remember the percentage of people actually getting promoted was three, thirty, four percent. Like it's not a high amount. So there was a good amount of people that test that didn't get promoted and they didn't make the cutoff score. So that's kind of how the enlisted rank progression works. So just to both on the starting over there here. James has got a very important detail, and you have to ask if it's not really applicable to a lot of people, or it doesn't really happen. But uh, Sergeant Rivera here got staff sergeants. Sergeant Rivera actually got something very unique. And so when he was at his last assignment, he got something which is called a step promotion, in which he actually got to forego the testing, and because he was good enough, and everyone knew he was good enough, he just got straight up on the spot, he was by his junior because he was just that awesome. That doesn't happen. So that's how he made it from E5 to E6. He was pretty much just the cream of the crop, and he's there like using the out by the powers that be. There you go, you're step promoted. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. So let's move on to uh, the next level of leadership here. So we went to ALS. So we go through ALS, and then once you Made tech sergeant and you're getting ready to put on senior NCO, you can go to a non-commissioner officer school, so the NCO Academy is what they call that. And it's kind of the same stuff as Airman Leadership School, just a little bit more detail on how to work with your airmen and, and learn how to motivate others by using intrinsic motivation. There's intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. Both work, and sometimes you have to use both different ones. But the ones that work the best, if you can figure out how to do it properly, 
you want to motivate your airmen, you find out what motivates them internally. We try to learn how to do that very hard, and it's different with everybody. Talking a little bit about what you mentioned earlier, I did have a really great opportunity in uh, Special Forces Com, uh, most of my career. Being able to go through Special Forces Com, it kind of gave me different opportunities to be able to receive different leadership experiences. I was able to go through a six-month Special Operations School to do a couple of jobs that I needed to be able to do. And then I was also able to go through Army Air Assault School, which gave me a joint leadership opportunity going to different deployments in joint environments allowed me to be in a position to be able to be set to move, like you said, which was much appreciated, and I'm thankful for my commander for doing that for me. I don't know if I really truly deserved it, but I was within that time frame that definitely deserved it, but I am thankful for it. Something very just answered that question in very, very, you know, we did this, and it was kind of like this, and give you a very specific stuff, because the work that you did over there is not thing that you can share a lot of information about, right? That's sort of a top secret kind of thing. Yes, sir. That's what I can't tell you kind of thing. So if you didn't get a lot of information, like detailed information from that, that's why I think you can't tell you. Speaking from an enlisted standpoint, what qualities make an officer relatable? What do you look for in an officer that you, I mean, you're going to follow all the officers because that's just their interest and that's how it is. But which officers do you respect, which officers do you not respect, and what are some differences? Well, number one, you respect all your officers. You respect everybody you work with, whether it be the Airman Basic, all the way up to Post General, so and so. Everybody should always be respected, whether you agree, disagree, impartial, it doesn't really matter. So we respect all of them. Okay, so respect my neighbor. What's a good word for that? There are definitely people that you just don't really appreciate. There are two types of leaders. One is a manager. Anybody can manage. My 17-year-old son is a manager at Compagnon, and he manages. He can do ins and outs. He opens the door, he closes the door, he locks it. Maybe somebody doesn't show up, and he just gets through the job. He's learning how to become what we are trying to do every day, and that is be an actual leader. Okay. There are, there, those are the two types, in my opinion, these are things, two types of actual leaders. There's a manager and there's a leader. A leader can, again, earn that respect that others will want to follow. A manager tends to get through the day. They're just negative to get in there, get that mm-hmm. Anybody can do it. A leader can sometimes, or often, be a manager at the same time. A manager cannot always be a leader. In fact, it's seldom that a manager actually effectively leads. Very seldom. Again, this is just me. I would say one out of every ten leaders, or oh, manager, whether they're enlisted or after, are actually so one out of ten people with rank actually leads. Absolutely. Interesting. That's just my personal opinion. What all these other people have. When it comes to higher NCOs and also officers, 
Mm-hmm. I'll be home for 30 days. Nobody came to see me. But he never did. A few of those people, mm-hmm. few of the officers, I had a couple of lieutenants in the army, or I know it, and an air force and a couple of other people. I don't even know how to tell my address. Mm-hmm. They didn't have it. I never gave it to them. Somehow, they figured out where I lived, and they came and found me. But none of my enlisted or officers came and found me. And so that is something that will always stay with me. It was very powerful to me because I think we are, as a whole, this is a voluntary military. None of us were drafted. None of us were, uh, well, I think very few of us, maybe some parents, you know, mm-hmm. put this in the military, right? Yeah. Maybe some. But there are more expensive medical schools. Oh, you have to be here. Uh-huh. So, but again, you don't have to be here. You don't. And I think every single day that we all choose to put that uniform on and choose to serve our country and anything else that we have in, inside that if we've chosen that, then we need to do our part and take care of our earnings. There's something called in this infrastructure that we have. It's called ASA Airport Handbook 
as physicians and surgeons and whatever else you all will be a part of. You put in the blood, sweat, and tears to go through medical school to do all that stuff. But with that said, you can do that in the outside world, and you chose to do it in the airport. So, you know, fly high and say that next. So that's what you need to have and enjoy it, right? Absolutely. You're going to be in the job. Yeah, that's it. All right. So that's the next episode with Dr. Rivera. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future more positions. For those of you listening, send in recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to share in particular, feel free to email grandmaeducationshare at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.